Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to our first NBA Finals episode of the year. We made it all the way. Nuggets and Heat, here we are in the Mile High City. Denver takes game one. How'd you feel about it, Cody? Did it did it deliver? I thought it was a fun game. I'm glad. I'm glad that the Heat gave got a little bit of a run. You know, I think they went on like an 11 to 0 run, maybe at the end of the third, going into the fourth. They hit a couple of three pointers. All of a sudden, you're like, okay, I don't have to change and go watch what other broadcast programming you might be watching if you're 70 years old. Um, but yeah, I I was just glad that happened. But beyond that, I uh, I thought the Nuggets probably could have won by more. Yeah, I thought they could have won by more. See, to break the fourth wall here for a second, for me, if they had just held on to that blowout, I could have started working on some video analysis earlier. So um, I was like, why? Is, is What's going to happen? Is there going to be a comeback? If you recall, that actually happened in game one of the finals last year where the Celtics had this crazy fourth quarter. I think Derek White hit a bunch of threes and they stormed back. They hit like seven straight threes or something and they stormed back and stole the game. So I was having a little deja vu about that. But in general, uh, what was it, an 11-point game at the end of the night? The Nuggets were up by as much as 24. They basically led throughout the entire evening and, uh, you know, I think we should start with the bread and butter of the Miami Heat in these playoffs, shooting 77% from three. Um, they had a more normal shooting game. And I don't know if you caught wind of this where you were listening to, to stuff, but it felt like people were going, oh, at least the Heat lost because they had a terrible shooting game. And I'm like, wait a second. They had like a normal, they shot like 33 or 34% from three. Wasn't great. Wasn't terrible. Missed some open looks, also didn't have some great shots uh, that they missed as well. And then you look at the box score at the end of the night, Miami shot better from downtown than Denver, but I thought Denver had better three-point looks. Michael Porter Jr. is an absolute assassin. He went two for 11 from downtown. Were 10 of those wide open? Were nine of those wide open? I mean, he's going to make four, five, six of those if he gets that shot quality. The It actually ended up technically being a defensive battle. The Heat had a 100 offensive rating in all their possessions throughout the night. The Nuggets had a 113 offensive rating. But just to stick with the three-point thing, if Denver makes, let's say, two extra threes, it's not even a good shooting game for them. I think they finished at 29% from three, one of their worst of the playoffs. They make two extra threes. That offensive rating's right back up to 118, 119. And that's what it felt like. You know, we spent a lot of the preview talking about how can you slow down this offense to just enough of a degree that the Heat can have a chance to score with them. And even though it was lower scoring, that was my big takeaway from game one. It's like, wow, whoa, what, what are the Heat going to do defensively? I think, you know, defensively, when I walked away from the game, I thought the Heat looked okay at some times, right? Well, I know I just said that I think the Nuggets probably could have won by more, but there were still a lot of defensive concepts that the Heat were throwing out there. I'm like, you know what? Maybe. Maybe they could try some more of these things to see how they work. One thing that I really liked, we talked about this in the preview pod, was, uh, you know, we made a lot of to-do about Anthony Davis falling down. Jokic is in really good shape. He runs down five on four. There were actually quite a few times, especially I thought in the second half, where Bam was across half court already, picking up Jokic already at that point. Right, like he was beating him down, completely stifling their transition. I didn't look at any transition numbers, but 
Denver must not have had many transition opportunities because I really thought the Heat were really buttoned up there. They didn't allow a lot of offensive rebounding, which again, we talked about Z-bounds, scoring off your own miss, which Jokic is really good at. They, they limited that quite a bit. So there were a couple avenues that I thought the Heat were doing well on defense. And even the zone, Ben, I think they ended up playing more zone against Jokic than against non-Jokic lineups. Like, the first time they threw out the zone was right when Jokic went to the bench. They went straight to the zone. But to start the fourth, all of a sudden they're in their zone. They go on that nice little run. Uh, It took a couple of plays, and I felt like Jokic and the Nuggets were starting to figure it out a little bit more. But I think it was just enough that they were kind of able to change the tenor of those few possessions. So, um, you know, I walked away thinking that I I was impressed with the Heat comparatively to what I've seen other teams do against the Nuggets. Yeah, some of those make sense. I think the transition was a little shaky though for me there there were a handful of transition breakouts just pure transition breakouts and that happens when bam takes a shot on the baseline or you have a silly turnover or i think one time um i can't remember who it was it may have been highsmith someone went into the stands to save a ball and saved it on the sideline right to one of the nuggets Mm. players all those plays are going to create transition And Denver is just too good, too well-coached, too balanced, too many high-quality offensive players. When they come down, they get good. They get wide-open threes. They get layups. They get good stuff in transition. But then the other side of the coin, I don't know if you're technically don't want to count this as transition, but all the cross matches, Mm -hmm. which, of course, was the the focus of the video for me uh, on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel because I thought that was sort of the biggest takeaway of okay what's happening here is on the exchange between defense and offense Denver can find mismatches with their size all over the court and we talked about it in the preview but it really popped in those transition plays and I think I actually came away from making the video there's so many of those plays you know in the course of a game you might have um, 90, 80 or 90 solid possessions. Some of the other possessions are free throws and, uh, you know, the ball goes off someone's leg. But let's say there's 80 solid possessions. If you're looking at that and you have like 15 examples of cross matches in transition creating a big problem for the defense, that's a, that's a big problem. That's a ton of examples uh, where something like that is happening. And so... There were a couple of them where I'm just like, are the Heat going to have to rethink how they play in transition? Because I don't think, you tell me what you think, I don't think it's a good idea for Jimmy Butler to be jogging back on defense and like go like, oh, I'll pick up Murray this time because they have no size, which leads to the maybe the simpler explanation. I think we're going to see a lineup change from Miami, and I think they probably need to get more size. I understand Highsmith is like listed at 6'7", and that was the change they made in the second half. They had way more Highsmith minutes on the court because of his size compared to someone like Caleb Martin. But Cody, I wonder, are we going to see, we talked about it in the preview, are we going to see Kevin Love start game two because the Heat don't have a lot of options, and at least that gives you that stretch big man curveball on offense where they could get a look at it to maybe see what they could get out of it. But on defense, it's weird to say, but even just having a second big body where like Aaron Gordon is a huge dude. That was obviously a focus of the video. But if Jokic can abuse Kevin Love, at least Aaron Gordon can't theoretically abuse Kevin Love like he can a small guard. 
and uh, I just think they needed more size out there. So that that is what I expect going forward. Something like that. If you want to work in basketball or just deeper your understanding of the NBA, Sports Business Classroom is my number one recommendation. Sports Business Classroom is an immersive program that takes place inside of Summer League in Las Vegas, and you'll get training in scouting, media, the salary cap, and analytics from industry leaders. Past instructors and guests include Commissioner Adam Silver, Mike D'Antoni, Masai Ujiri, Daryl Morey, Mike Breen, and Zach Lowe. Dozens of SBC alum have gone on to work in basketball, including two Thinking Basketball team members. And this year's session runs from July 9th to 15th in Las Vegas. So if you're interested, check out sportsbusinessclassroom.com. And I have a discount for you. Enter the code THINKINGBASKETBALL at sign up and get $300 off. That's sportsbusinessclassroom.com. And for $300 off, enter the code thinking basketball so if we go back to something you said i agree with you like a big focal point of the video you should totally go watch it if you haven't over on youtube the thinking basketball channel not more thinking basketball which you should also go there and watch mike de la rosa's breakdown it's of uh it's michael got porter yeah it's got nuggets lo- on nuggets yeah a lot of nuggets a lot of nuggets content but you're right about the cross matches the nuggets were able to eat that up usually nuggets are being eaten but this time nuggets were cannibalizing the other way um but I would rather the cross-match issues as opposed to just, like, playing four-on-five on on defense. So it's, like, a step up uh, comparably to, like, how the Lakers were doing it last – I was going to say last trimester. I'm such in school mode right now, Ben. I'm just just ready to grade some papers. Uh, But the last series, the Lakers were just, like, not getting back and getting run out with the four-on-five situations. Yeah, the cross-matches were an issue, but I also don't know if they were expecting Aaron Gordon to be able to use his weight – as well as he did. You know, I think the NBA, I think a lot of people see it as a complete speed league where it's like, oh, we need a, a speedy little point guard, a speedy wing that's going to be able to touch the paint, break down the defense. Whereas we've seen across these playoffs, the bulk, the heft, being able to throw yourself around an established position is so important. We've seen it straight from guys like like Kevin Durant, who is maybe being able to be uh, pushed around a little bit more against like these nuggets. And then again, last night, you know, Aaron Gordon gets a mismatch goes straight down to the weight room, throws him into the basket. It's a marriage of the egghead, meathead kind of life. You know, you're not just Hulk smashing, you're doing it with a brain. And I think that's really a key from what we're seeing is being able to use that size. But now that Miami knows that Aaron Gordon can do this, I don't know. I think that they'll be able to adjust to that better in game two. That I don't know if you can count that as a prediction, but I don't think we're going to see the same sorts of cross-match issues in game two. Well, we did talk about this explicitly in the preview where we're in this era that sometimes prevents big men from abusing, you know, the Rudy Gobert problem. Like, why can I switch a small guy onto him and then I can't get an easy basket? Some of it is the way the game is officiated with smaller players being able to be simultaneously very physical and then also flop the second the bigger player does anything. But some of it is just better help schemes denying the post, a lot of fronting of the post, a lot of three-quarter fronting of the post with a second defender sliding over. Couldn't necessarily do that 30 years ago because of illegal defense. You couldn't cheat that defender over to help take away the post catch. So that has changed things where we don't always see this. But the one thing we talked about in the preview, Cody, this is organic for the Nuggets, especially Jokic and Gordon. And they were the two guys 
where it really popped in game one with these cross-match is- issues, switching smaller players onto them. Because that Heat starting lineup, I mean, Jimmy Butler at least is physical enough to prevent Gordon from just having these, you know, walkways to the basket, right? But Butler can't really guard Jokic. That's a problem. Um, I think I'm being generous when I say he can't really guard him. He can't guard him. It it creates a problem. Miami's double teaming. I don't know what's going on there. I don't know why you would ever double team Nikola Jokic. I guess it's always better than giving up a layup, uh, but it just seems like, it just seems like you're playing with fire when you do that. So, so, I'm rambling, but the point here is Bam is the only player on the court with that starting lineup. So at least if you had two bigs out there, at least maybe you could have a second player size-wise that could switch over and not have this like immediate Bam. We're just going to go right. I shouldn't have said Bam. Um, boom, <laughs> boom, boom. We're going to go right at this at this mismatch. Um, and it's the same thing, like one step removed because with Gordon, he's so strong Basically, the way the Heat started the game yesterday, you had Gabe Vincent and Caleb Martin and even Max Struess were all targets. So 60% of your starting lineup was a problem. But again, and I mentioned this in the video, Jokic is the center of this whole thing. Because when you come down, you're freaking out about only Bam being able to guard Jokic. So the domino effect of that is only Butler can guard uh, Gordon. I just, I'm just wondering if size is the answer. Maybe, maybe it's not. But to your point, a lot of times in game one, something happens, and then without major, major adjustments, teams kind of clue in. They, they go through the walkthrough. They say, okay, we're going to take this away. And then you don't really see it for the rest of the series. This is the kind of thing where I expect we're not going to see eight easy field goals in the first half. But I think it's just a constant organic part of the Nuggets offense that if you don't make the right trade-offs, you are going to give that up consistently throughout the series a couple times throughout each game the organic part that you're talking about to you you bring up fronting in the post and I'm picturing it might have been one maybe a couple plays in the first half where it was like this where I'm pretty sure it's Gabe Vincent specifically on Aaron Gordon and he's immediately like oh I got to get in front of this guy because if he gets the ball it's it's over but then the issue like you said usually there's like a second player that's able to hang back and defend the rim but like in this little triangle formation right you have uh, Jamal Murray who might try to enter it down into Gordon but then at the top you have Nikola Jokic, who's shooting what, like 900% from three? So you can't leave him. He's so shooting what, whatever he wants from three. That, that yeah. apparently, I, I'm in my notes, it's, I'm calling him Nikola Nowitzki. But yes, no. keep, although he might, he, is he a better shooter than Dirk Nowitzki? That's a sidebar. Keep, keep going. I don't know what's we, happening. We can maybe get to that at some point here. But Murray, what he's able to do is he swings it to the top where Jokic is and immediately just enters it down to Gordon. And Jokic is so good at finding just, like, the slightest little spot. He's like Odysseus, like, firing through the 12 axe heads. Like, the pinpoint accuracy of his ability whenever there's just the slightest space for there. Gordon just has to carve out the littlest room for him to get it. And I thought Jokic was just, you know, in terms of, like, maybe if you're trying to impress somebody when passing, you show, like, some Magic Johnson clips. Some of those, like, no-look dimes and transition, they look beautiful. And they're very functional, too, of course. But Jokic, the amount of just, like, functional pinpoint passes where you're like man the ability to just hit that right on the head is it it blew me away Ben for a guy that's as good and efficient as he's been the passing just completely unlocked what the Nuggets were trying to do so I want to get to the other side of the ball because there's some very interesting things happening on the other side of the ball but we can go through all of this 
Um, I, I, I made a video about a ton of this until we're blue in the face. And we can see what happens in game two. We can see how they try to limit it. Maybe that's the right word. They're not, they're not necessarily going to need to tilt their defense to take this away. Aaron Gordon didn't have 38 points. He had 16 or whatever it was. Um, but it's something that they're going to have to limit because you don't want to give up these easy baskets. You don't want the opponent's shot quality to be amenable to a 130 offensive rating. You want to make it harder. Cody, we, we haven't even gotten to the two-man thing. Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic doing everything they want to do. You want to talk about fronting. There's a play at the beginning of the game where Murray is going up to get a handoff. And, of course, this is what the Nuggets do all the time. Jokic has the ball in the middle of the court. Maybe there's some screening action. Murray is deeper in the paint. He comes flying up. He's going to get that handoff. They're going to go into whatever they want to go into. So I believe, very deliberately, Gabe Vincent is on top of Murray. He's top-locking him. He's trying to take away that cut. Murray just, whoop, shoots shoots back door. Jokic, one-hand pass, layup. And the broadcasters are like, whoa, look at that pass. And I'm in my notes like, whoa, look at that coverage. So they're trying to do things to take away the bread-and-butter two-man action in the half court. And the first thing they tried just failed, like, catastrophically. And I think part of all of this plugs into a bigger problem. Again, we can get to the two-man game, but the bigger problem is, where does Jokic like the ball, Cody? Where does he do a lot of work with the ball? Like the top of the perimeter, around the nail Where does that put Bam Adebayo? Top of the perimeter, around the nail or so. So he's not in the paint. Yeah. Okay, so when you have no size, who's left at the basket? We saw it in the first play of the game. It's the first play in the video. It jumped out to me right away. They try to deny Jokic the ball. Murray just uses Bam and Jokic as a screen, drives to the basket, and all he has to do is fin- finish over like Gabe Vincent or something. And I don't know if you know this, but Jamal Murray is like 6'5 in shoes. And KCP is like 6'6 in shoes. And Aaron Gordon is like at least 6'8 in shoes. And Michael Porter's like 6'11 in shoes or something. And Jokic is 7 feet tall in shoes. The rest of the Heat are teeny, teeny Bobini compared to that, okay? They, they Is that a thing? I just made that up. They, they There's no one there. There's no one left at the basket to block any of these shots or put any pressure on any of the cutters, any of the post-ups, any of the drives, anything that's happening if Jokic is going to keep Bam out on the perimeter. So I think all of this ties into a larger issue there. I think I tried to like... You're still recovering from teeny, teeny Bobini. Yeah, Yeah. I did. I was like constructing the song in my head and I'm like, maybe we could quit the podcast and just start write children's songs. You know, I feel like you you strike me as a ukulele strumming uh, (laughs) whatever noun goes after ukulele strumming. But I I mentioned this last time when I was trying to go a little galaxy brain when I was like, what if we get Bam Adebayo off Jokic a little bit more? And I I don't necessarily know because like you said... Who then defends Jokic? Like, are we going to get to the point? Because I feel like even a couple of years ago, we saw a lot of Bam playing at the four. Is that something that they're going to actually have to try? Right? Like, do you put, like you said, Kevin Love in there. Kevin Love's on Jokic. Bam's playing at the back. I, I don't even know. Because even if you have Kevin Love in, yeah, he's got some more size. It's going to be harder to attack him head on just because he's a bigger body. But he's not really offering any rim protection. So, I don't know, Ben. What, what would you do about this conundrum if you were Miami? Um... Can you do trades in the middle of the series? <laughs> like for Jokic? Are they, are they trying to trade for Jokic? I think it would be cool and very sportsmanlike if you could let players swap teams during games just to try it out, just to see 
how it goes. Uh, like a friendly. Um, don't get mad at me, soccer people. That was a joke. I know, I know a friendly is not that. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I think that leads us to the zone. Hmm. Maybe that's why we had 17. We, we tracked on our site 17 possessions of the zone. I don't know what the optical tracking uh, came up with, but we had tagged 17 possessions of the zone. The Heat did a decent job, but you know the Nuggets still got good looks. It slowed them down a few times. I think about half were with Jokic on the court, half were with Jokic off the court. The issue with the zone, Cody... Well, there's a couple issues, but uh, the first thing is the more you show it to Jokic, who's going to play 35 to 40 minutes a night, the more he's going to intuitively understand how to manipulate the def- – forget how to attack it. He's going to start manipulating the defenders once he understands what they want to do. Uh, the other issue is – I'll go back to a question I just asked you. Uh, where, does, where does Jokic like the ball? Uh, at the top of the perimeter, probably around the <laughs> nail area. Where where do teams and the Nuggets want to get the ball to attack the zone? Uh, top of the perimeter, around the nail or so. And would, who would they like to have the ball to do that? Uh, Nikola Jokic, their uh, MVP. So, to me, you have this uh, bad matchup situation where it's like, the thing Denver wants to do anyway, the thing they're good at, is the thing that punctures the zone. And actually... Only a couple possessions, because like I said, they had a few possessions that slowed them down, I thought, or took them out of their rhythm, uh, even with Jokic on the court. But there were like two or three possessions that the Nuggets had great success against the zone, where if you didn't see earlier in the possession or you didn't know what was going on, you wouldn't notice it's a zone at all because Denver just ran their offense. Jamal Murray, spacing is perfect. Guy in the corner, guy in the opposite corner. I'm going to drive right. The help's late. I finish. Or, or actually, in that case, I think he uh, pivoted back for a little 10-foot fadeaway. The Jokic short roll, no-look pass highlight from the game, that was against the zone. They just ran pick and roll. They ball screened up at the top. Jokic short rolls down the lane. He does his little look to the corner. There's only one low defender there. It's like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to jump in because I think this play is really fascinating if it's the same one that we're thinking about. But what I love about that is is it actually took a long time into the shot clock for them to get to that point, right? It kind of felt like the Nuggets were just trying to figure out what they were going to do offensively. It seemed like they were trying to get into some pick-and-roll actions, and then maybe with like five seconds left in the shot clock, Jokic gets up there, sets a screen, rolls into that area, and then that dump-off pass he makes. I mean, he's like catching, spinning, there's traffic, someone's cutting from the corner, and all of a sudden it's a dunk. So a possession that looks like it's like, wow, this Miami zone is looking great. 
turns into a dunk at the end. And I think that's what makes it so impossible to defend them is they just, they're just not rattled. And Jokic can make these just impossible passes where there's just traffic all around him. And he's like, eh, I'm still patient enough where I can see these people cutting and still being able to look off to the defense. So I think that's the other aspect of it is even if it doesn't work for them, the first 18 seconds of the shot clock, six seconds is eternity against this Nuggets team. Yeah. Um, as we talk this through, I kind of feel like to answer your question in a non-cop-out way, in a serious way. If I'm Miami, I mean, at a certain point, you just might have to concede that there is too big of an advantage with the team across from you. The personnel, the, the, the way they're coached, the way they play. And that leads me to think you don't have a lot of cards. You can't just, like, they don't even have a lot of centers. Who, who, who's going to play? Uh, you're at seven. Is he going to start and play 35 minutes and you're going to go Twin Towers? Like, they just don't have a lot of cards. And I think when you run out of cards, to me, and I, I think sometimes Eric Spolster embodies this, you got to junk it up. You got to just do ridiculous things. So the Heat have this zone, but... As an example here, maybe this zone is too scouted. Maybe this zone is too... Maybe they throw a different zone. Maybe they start throwing two different zones. Two very different zones. Um, Maybe they start doing weird stuff like like your suggestion. Like putting Jimmy Butler deliberately on Jokic. Having Bam roam off. uh, Just double teaming in random spots as you go... Like full court press. Let's try a three-quarter court trap and see if falling back somehow kills enough clock. Because the direction I'm really going here is, once you get to like, we can't stop them, their offensive rating is 120 or whatever. It's been 124 the entire playoffs with with Jokic on the court. When you junk it up and you try different things, it can feel like it's failing, but actually a 118 offensive rating is better than the half court. We know what we're doing every time, 125 offensive rating. And, and that's just the desperation sort of attempt that you have to make to try to slow them down. Um, and outside of the players just playing better, which, which can happen and potentially will happen with a, with a Heat team going forward, those are the kinds of tactical moves that would try to sprinkle in there on that end of the court. The other end of the court we can talk about more, but I'm still stuck on how to stop them defensively for the for the uh for the fourth consecutive series first of all when when you say miami cup might come out with two different kinds of zones like i'm, I'm getting a little sweaty I'm, i mean it might be a heat wave like it's moister than an oyster out here in minnesota but like maybe it's the fact that you're you're tossing out this two zone thing because that sounds that sounds like ideal basketball can i ask you a really big probably uh inappropriately early question ben yeah okay ben um where right now if you had to do it you can say pick and roll, or you can say two-man action. Where would you rank Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic in terms of pick and roll slash two-man tandems in NBA history? What what, what are the, like, uh, is is it like uh, Magic and Kareem? Is that what you're thinking of? Who uh, Oscar and Kareem? Who are the... So who are the- I, I, I'm thinking specifically, I guess more specifically in the pick and roll, like the sta- uh, the stash, the Nash, Amari, Amari Stoudemire kind of combo, mm, okay. Stockton, Malone, uh, I don't know, Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, LeBron, Anthony Davis, wh- whoever else you would put in terms of like these two guys are involved, probably in a pick and roll at the top, and you got to stop it. Where does Murray and Jokic rank in your mind? I don't know. I don't know. Let me think about that more because okay. uh, uh, the key to the question is the last key to me 
to the Nuggets offense from game one. We spend all this time trying to move the chess pieces around and figure out what Miami can do and all, you, you know, X's and O's and geeking out till we're blue in the face. But Cody, I mean, man, if Jamal Murray plays like this, if Jamal Murray plays like a top 10, 12 offensive player in the world, whatever it is, it's like we're talking about, then I think it becomes more comfortable to say, oh, this is one of the best offensive teams we've ever seen. And like, oh, this is an elite dominant offense, period, full stop, in the playoffs against anyone. And much like the late, the 80s Lakers, which is why my mind went there, all you need is like a pretty good defense. And they've been a pretty good defense. They've mm-hmm. been an above average defense bordering maybe on a good playoff defense with some of the length and the cohesion um, and the collective intelligence, the, the way they communicate and the way they're all sort of on the same page. Actually, in game one, they actually had a few errors that you don't always see with some of their rotations where two guys went in the same direction. But much like those 80s Lakers teams, the 80s Lakers were like a mediocre, average-ish, slightly above-average defensive team a lot of years in the regular season, and then they got better in the playoffs. When you look at their long-term playoff stuff, they were actually like a good playoff defensive team on top of that Magic Johnson, how are you going to stop us offense? So... I want to table that question because at the end of the day, and maybe that's what Miami needs to try to do, uh, take away Murray. Maybe you take away Murray on the other end. Maybe one thing we see less of in game two going forward is we're going to put Nikola Jokic in 95 pick and rolls. It just felt like almost every possession, they're like bringing Jokic into the action, which is, by the way, very organic for them because they want Bam in all those screening actions. Bam is not a shooter. Sometimes you have Bam up at the top passing and diming up people, but a lot of that is handoff action to then get Bam rolling downhill. But they just did it all the time. They did not, per se, go after um, Jamal Murray uh, like the Lakers did with LeBron. So maybe changes on that side where like you attack Murray, maybe you get him in foul trouble, maybe you can start to wear him down. The old Steph Curry, we're going to put you in 75 pick and rolls and take away your legs. Maybe that helps with a defensive concept on the other end of the court where you could maybe slow him down because when he's playing at this level, I I, I genuinely don't know what you do uh, without having like a super team yourself. When you talk about attacking Murray... The first guy I think about for attacking him, just like LeBron attacking Murray in the previous uh, series, it'd be Jimmy Butler probably attacking him. But I think you mentioned it in your video, too. Butler seemed a little bit more passive. I think passive might have been the term at times that you might have used in the video. And it definitely seemed like this. This wasn't the, like, clutch you by the throat and just take you out kind of Butler that we've seen throughout the playoffs. Do you think, like, what was your read on that whole situation? Was it a particular way that the Nuggets were defending him? Is there something that Miami should be doing differently or that they were doing differently, that they weren't unlocking his abilities? What was your read on the Butler performance? Well, I, know, I happen to know you stopped the video before finishing it, but I think, I think half of it was the length. I think just that the Nuggets are just so big and long that when, when Butler is a player who I think really times up the rhythm and cadence of his opponents. And he uses that to his advantage and maybe coming out of the gate and getting blocked twice in a row on that early play, like dealing with, it it goes back to the difference between practicing something and then actually experiencing something. It's like you hit the nuggets. How can the heat simulate the nuggets length? 
I mean, are they going to do that thing in practice where they give all the players paddles and have them, you know, have longer wingspans? Because that kind of thing, you get out there, Jokic is a little smarter, his hands are a little quicker, they're all well positioned, and their smallest dude is Jamal Murray. And even Jamal Murray had a play in the game where he came over and literally came over and made an elite rim protection rotation against Bam Adebayo, who rolled free to the basket. It's like, that's their, that's their point guard. Um, to me, it was some of that. To me, it's also just a Butler, I think because of the nature of his game, has to kind of find and pick and choose his spots. A couple mid-range shots were off, and, and he didn't push it, didn't push the matter after that. But I do think he absolutely has to find a way to get to the basket either for easy scores or to try to get back into that foul drawing, up faking, those sort of like arrhythmic, syncopatic, I'm dribble, dribble, boom, I'm going to jump into you. Dribble, dribble, hop, step, pivot, up fake, up fake, up fake. He, he's got to get back to stuff like that. Maybe that helps create more pressure, um, spray it out to the perimeter to the three-point shooters, and then you get some synergy that way and the offense is humming. Your description of Butler's movements made me sound like you were like going to do a Mortal Kombat fatality or something like that. It's like up, up, down, left, right, B, B, A, and then something happens. But Butler That's... wasn't able to tap into that killer instinct this time. Yeah. Um, they, they did have some success attacking Jokic, I thought, when they would go side to side or kind of try to use one action to then stretch into another action. There's this beautiful play. It might have been an after timeout that they drew up where they started um, they started the possession on one side of the court and then swung the ball all the way to the opposite side of the court for one of those handoffs, like swing it all the way over while a third player is cutting over to get the handoff. Um, that, is, that is a harder thing to defend because then you can't set up and dictate your coverage. And the Nuggets did mix coverages throughout the night. And I think this is another sort of underrated thing about their playoff defense. Uh, Drop coverage. We can do that. Hedging, showing on the pick and roll and recovering. We can do that. Switching. We can do that. And, And in the last couple series, I can't remember Minnesota off the top of my head, but they're doing this within a game based on the different players that are in the screening action. So Chris Paul, we're going to drop. Kevin Durant, we're going to come up and hedge. Jimmy Butler, we're going to drop. Uh, Someone like Gabe Vincent or a pull-up shooter, Duncan Robinson, we're going to be up at the level of the screen and recover. And that takes practice. That takes intelligence to be on the same page as a unit and understand the rotations. And again, uh, last point I think about the Nuggets' length here, we've, we've been on it all year. Mike DeLaRosa had a, I think, had a piece or a video uh, on it earlier in the year, um, or maybe it was something in the shift video we did. The, the, the guys, when you have Michael Porter coming over on the back line, when you have KCP, when you have Aaron Gordon, they're constantly shrinking the court and then recovering and rotating and scrambling, and that's almost where they like to be, right? And I don't think because they don't have the elite shot blocking, they don't really have the personnel to do that and be like a top top 10 defense of all time. They're not going to win the title with their defense alone. So that means sometimes you'll get open threes. 
Sometimes if you move it around enough, you'll get a dunk. The Heat had a couple of those. They had a couple of really beautiful ball movement possessions, and they got a layup. But man, does Denver love living in that space defensively. They are comfortable as all heck with Bruce Brown, KCP, Gordon. They're flying. Two guys are jumping at the ball. The shot clock's running out, and you got a fadeaway three. And that happens like five, eight times a game. It's, It's tough to beat. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And that's why I made the comment in the, in the preview, I think, where I think the bench lineups could even be better defensively because they're just so comfortable flying around against uh, a team that might be a similar... A, a smaller size like this heat squad. Something I want to talk I want to talk a little bit more about that drop because one thing that I did found interesting is is Jokic seemed to be dropping against Lowry a little bit more, which I found I don't necessarily know if I agree with that and you know, I'm sure things will get changed, maybe they'll adjust if they decide. Maybe they actually do just want Kyle Lowry to shoot more. But Kyle Lowry, a couple of his pull-up threes, maybe even a pull-up mid was a big part of that. I think like I said 11-0 run that the Heat had, but then something else that the Heat were doing to to beat some of Jokic's hedges was Bam's slipping the screen. And this is the sort of thing that you see Draymond doing tactically with Steph Curry. He sets the screen. He gets away immediately so that he can catch the ball in the middle and be one of the best uh, playmaking fours of all time. Bam, I thought, you know, the the incredible mid-range shooting display aside, I thought he had a more impressive passing display yesterday. He had the entire package. Some of the things that I said about Jokic, he had the same sort of catch in the middle. One of his guys cuts from the baseline. He hits him for a, a dunk pass, right? He catches at the top. Uh, Jimmy Butler gets a rip screen transition. Bam. Hits him on a... I, again, I guess I shouldn't say bam. Boom. <laughs> he hits him on the, on the cutting layup pass, right? And I think that's a really big key is Jokic isn't going to be quick enough to be able to step up to defend on the hedge and then get back to to Bam. So immediately they're going to have sort of a power play. So I'm interested to see the the dynamic there to see how the Nuggets try and counter Bam being able to catch the ball in the middle of the court like that. Yeah, no, those are, those are great points. Uh, I think Miami did find some success there. Uh, it, it'll be interesting to see if they continue to to drop against the same players they're dropping against, I totally get the drop against Butler. You know, I think that's the one to me that makes the most sense. And then Butler, how, how do you attack that? Do you start taking more threes uh, and put that pristine 34% three-point shooting in the playoff on the line? Uh, because, you know, you're going you're gonna to have to take six or eight pull-up threes in a game. Um, I, I don't know, but they had, they had some success, success there offensively there was a really cool sequence in the game where the nuggets were icing the ball screen meaning they were pushing the pick and roll to one side of the court so Jokic is way back at the basket and whoever's guarding the ball handler turns himself and and tries to say you're not using this screen you go you can go to the sideline as much as you want you're not using this screen and the nuggets had like three consecutive counters to this where they ran staggered screens, two screeners over on the sideline, and then had one immediately flare out off the other one. 
Uh, and that created, you know, okay, we got to guard that guy who's flaring out to shoot. Uh, we have to switch or something. That created a little confusion as a way to counter the ice coverage of the Nuggets. They did it three straight times and had, I thought, three pretty good possessions out of it. And then we didn't see too much of that the rest of the night because I think that brought the Nuggets out of that coverage when they were in that situation. But, you know, I don't know. I think there was some optimism on that side of the ball, but you have to you have to go into game two and find those soft points in the defense and attack them, whether it's going after Murray, whether it's something to get Butler going, like you said, whether it's more of Bam slipping, getting him in the middle. I'm not sure what it is, but I think there were some promising things there between Adebayo, some of the movement, some of the cutting. Duncan Robinson had a few uh, promising possessions again, I thought. So maybe that's something that gives you optimism because all you got to do is steal game two on the road. You steal serve. Coming back home, you get all the the benefits of home court advantage um, that help you there. So maybe that's something to build off going into going into the second game. You know, another talking point, again, I, it's been a very short amount of time. I haven't been able to really wade into the discourse to see what people were saying. But I think I saw, did, did the Miami Heat take two free throws during the game? They took, as a team, yeah. <laughs> they took two free throws, which I think they said was the fewest amount of free throws, either in a playoff game or a final. I think it was a finals game, maybe the fewest amount. So, you know, I was diving into that a little bit more. Uh, apparently, Bam's 26 without a free throw attempt is like the 10th most points in a single finals game without a free throw attempt. Uh, fun fact, three of the top 10 were in the 2021 finals between the Suns and the Bucks. I think Booker did it, Drew Holiday did it, and I think Chris Middleton each had one around like 27 to 30. Uh, but when I when you hear that, I think if you're just maybe a layperson, you hear that statistic, you're immediately like, oh, wow, Denver really got the home whistle. But I think all of this kind of combines with like, yeah, Bam fell in love with the mid-range jumper. Jimmy wasn't really pushing the subject. There really weren't a lot of times where I thought that the Heat were missing that call. Like to me, it was, you know, I'm, I don't know if other people thought it was an unfairly officiated game, but I didn't walk away saying that the the Heat were just getting miffed going to the basket. I just didn't think they were quite pushing the subject as much. Maybe it was Caleb Martin not being able to get downhill as much. Jimmy Butler wasn't getting downhill as much. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think that that two free throw attempts is definitely smaller than we'll see throughout the series. But I also kind of think it was indicative of the way that Miami was playing offensively. Yeah, I don't remember. I mean, Cody, it was an NBA basketball game. So there are definitely some people who think it was poorly officiated. <laughs> I, I, I guarantee you that if there's a place I could make that bet, we would be very wealthy. Um, but I don't remember a lot of even physical confrontations at the hoop. Miami got a lot of their stuff um, on like drives with a breakdown, a little slip or a cut back door. There were a lot of a lot of attempts at the rim like that versus two players coming together, banging together some some big contest. So, yeah, I think they're going to have to find a way to pressure the basket uh, going forward in game two and the rest of the series. The other thought I have is about the heat shooting that we've been just trying to figure out for the whole playoffs. And I'm just like, what's what's going on? Um, they apparently, I, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember who had the stat on Twitter. Someone pulled it. They apparently shot 58% on their wide open threes against the Celtics, which is an all-time record in the optical tracking error. 58%. On their wide open threes, I, there may have might have been a series that was at like 55 that was the closest. And as a team, I don't think there's too many instances other than that over like 
52%. In a series, of course, that was a seven-game series as well against Boston. So a lot of attempts there. Uh, I want to say 70-some-odd open threes that they had in that series. That Cody was worth about five and a half points a game relative to the average wide open three-point shot. And the average wide open three-point shot is something like 38%. It's a good percentage. But when you are that far ahead on your 10 attempts a game, it gives you like an extra five and a half points a game. And for those of you not familiar with what that means in terms of like wins and losses, if you're five and a half points per game better over the course of a season with your point differential, that's like the difference between a 40-win team and like a 57-win team. That is a massive, massive difference. And of course, it, it could swing a series. So, you know, um, Caleb Martin. Caleb Martin has uh, played incredibly well. He's made a ton of shots. His three-year wide-open three-point shooting percentage, according to that same tracking data, is 34%. He's in the 18th percentile. But it felt like he didn't miss against the Celtics. Someone like Max Struess, who couldn't make a shot in Game 1 for the Heat, he, over the long term, has looked like a good outside shooter. I think he's 44 or 45% over the last three regular seasons, according to that same tracking data. So... You know, I'm still wondering here, are the Heat actually a good team? I think South Seth Partnow had the point recently that they weren't a great three-point shooting team this season because a lot of the players had down years. But when you look at the larger sample, you're actually talking about a ton of shooters. So is this a really good three-point shooting team? And game one is almost a little bit of a, a letdown in that, you know, we should expect these 40 45% explosive nights from them or have they just been running incredibly hot and uh sort of the the clock has struck midnight on their shooting luck and if you pull away that shooting luck which is why i wanted to give you the math on that uh, it's a huge deal it's six six points a game is a huge hole to come out of if you were to lose that shooting luck especially against an offense like this am i allowed to think that the answer somewhere in the middle is that is that a take i'm supposed to have here well you already don't think we didn't hear you sneak in your milwaukee bucks bingo card today um so <laughs> I, I guess we'll have to give you this one as well we're what they shot 45 percent. that definitely hasn't carried over this season so yeah i it's it's really i don't i don't know how to to word this frustrating is not the right thing but i think every playoff game invariably ends up turning into a shot quality or shot variance kind of conversation, which I think is like a very fair conversation to have. But like we just did prior to that, I think there's a lot more going on that you can point to. But no matter what, in a single game sample, there's going to be some kind of variance, right? So next game, you know, maybe we'll see some same things. But still, I'm only going to be paying, not only, but I'm going to be paying attention to see these other big concept things they change, right? Like how how does uh, Miami attack some weaknesses? Are they going to start attacking Murray? Are they able to shift up their zone in some kind of way so that they can handle Jokic being in the middle or something like that? So uh, I don't necessarily think that the variance has huge explosion planetary power in this game just because like you pointed out the Nuggets actually shot worse <laughs> they shot worse from three uh than Miami but you know I think on the whole Miami's probably better than what the regular season says for them uh especially from the three-point line I think maybe even Duncan Robinson has something to say with that because he's actually getting into the rotation but you know long-winded way of saying I don't expect Max Struess to go 0 for 9 from three uh again but I also don't expect Michael Porter Jr. to go two for 11 from three again 
ultimate question before we get out of here that everyone likes to ask now after game one, uh, are you feeling any differently about how you felt before, your predictions, your assessment of how these teams match up? So I said the Nuggets were either going to sweep or win in five. You had, you had heat in six. We all know it. <laughs> you're going to be pushing this to the day. It's going to be like 10 years from now. It's like, you're the guy that picked heat in six. Um, By the way, if you missed the preview show, Cody did not pick uh, the heat in six, just for the record. But if but if the heat do win in six, then um, maybe I did. You maybe. did get all the credit for that. Yes. Yeah, I'll take all the credit for that. But yeah, I... I still think the Nuggets in, in four or five because of the hot shooting moment that we saw from the Heat and the fact that they were a little down. I could see them stealing a game, but I'm still pretty comfortable in saying leaning sweep, leading five games. Uh, if you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Also, remember, you can get that uh, $300 off sports business classroom with the sign up code thinking basketball. Uh, thanks, as always, for listening to this one all the way through. We will be back sometime after game two. I think game two is on Sunday coming up, and we will try to be back around a similar hour on Monday to, to get our thoughts on the record on game two. Uh, once again, uh, thanks for listening all the way through to the end. And of course, uh, I hope you're having a great day.